Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Alamogordo. More information about First Baptist Church can be found at www.fbcalamo.com. All right, well now as the, as the kids head back to the Fellowship Hall for Kids Church with uh, Michelle, let me invite you to take your Bible and go to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, as we begin this gospel, we're uh, beginning this new, new series, Walking Through the Shortest Gospel. Um, if you've never, if you've never uh, kind of studied the, the differences in, in the gospels, um, let, let me just tell you, we, in the gospels we have four different perspectives on Jesus' life and ministry and death and resurrection. All written in different purposes, for, with, with different purposes for different audiences, and so they all read a little bit differently. But what, what's remarkable is how, um, really, how uh, united they are, unified they are in their message about Jesus. And so, as as we talk here about what it means to make disciples, right? If that's if that's our tagline, making disciples, you make disciples. Um, we want to be sure we understand what it means to be a follower of Christ because we, we can't reproduce something that we are not ourselves. So it's important for us to, to learn, to understand what it means to be a disciple of Christ in order to then turn around and make disciples. One of the ways that we can do that is by looking at the life and death and ministry and, and the resurrection of Jesus. And so let me prepare you. As I've said the last few weeks, we're going to be in Mark for a long time. I'm not going to tell you how long. Just know we're going to be here a long time, okay? And, and one of the reasons for that is, is because I don't want us just to skip through it. I don't want us to rush through this. I want us to marinate in the gospel. That's why we're going to go slowly. We're going to take a long, hard look at the ministry of Jesus. Now, as I said, each of the gospels are unique. They're written from, from different viewpoints. Each of them presents a slightly different picture of Jesus. And so Mark is, is technically anonymous. It's never signed. It's never, um, this is Mark's gospel. Or, or you know, he doesn't end, like, like, he doesn't close it out by saying, sincerely, Mark. That, that doesn't happen. But it's, it's traditionally been attributed to John Mark, uh, who we'll see throughout the, the, the gospel as well. Now, we do know that, that John Mark was a cousin of Barnabas, and that he accompanied Paul and Barnabas on at least part of their first missionary journey. If you're familiar with Acts at all, you'll know that in Acts chapter 13, John Mark turned back and he left Paul and Barnabas. And later on, Barnabas wanted to bring Mark along for a second journey, and Paul said, absolutely not. He abandoned us once, we're not bringing him back. In fact, we're told this caused such a large argument that Barnabas and Paul split company because Paul refused to bring Mark along. Barnabas wouldn't go without Mark. However, we know that at some point, um, Mark and Paul were reconciled because at the end of 2 Timothy, Paul asks for Mark by name, saying he's useful for me in ministry. After Paul was executed, church history tells us that Mark moved to Egypt where he established churches in Alexandria and, and lived there for a long time. Now, it's also believed generally that Mark is the earliest of the Gospels. And it was written around the time uh, that Peter was martyred 
around A.D. 64. And actually, many theologians believe that Mark's gospel is actually Mark's record of the apostle Peter's teachings about Jesus. So, so some have actually said this is, this is the closest thing we have to Peter's gospel. So John Mark, while, while not one of the original apostles, was around the ministry of Jesus and spent considerable time with the apostles. And this is him writing around 30 years after the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, in our day and age, that may seem like a long time because um, we're used to uh, sometimes memoirs or books being published within months of events. Um, now, keep in mind, in the first century, uh, nobody could just go to a computer and type out what they just saw. It, it, it took time to get, to, to get things written down. I would imagine that after experiencing all that happened with Jesus and, and what happened in the life of the early church and the early believers, I, I think it took some time for even the followers of Jesus to get perspective on what they had experienced with Jesus. So 30 years, especially from a, from a historical standpoint, is extremely early that we have this record of Jesus' ministry. And so with that in mind, with that background, let's dive into Mark Go with me to Mark chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 8. And let's stand as we read the word of the Lord this morning. Mark writes, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make his paths straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John wore a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, one, is more powerful than I, one who is more powerful than I am is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we lift up our time together this morning to you, and we simply ask that you'll speak through your word as we dive into this gospel. I pray you'll use it to open our eyes to who Jesus is, to the life that he lived, the, the ministry that he had, the death that he died on our behalf, and, and how he was raised from the dead that we might be set free from the power, the penalty of sin and death. So I pray you'll simply speak through your word this morning. Use me as your instrument to proclaim your word. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can have a seat. We, we, we talked about, or the, the title of this message is The Promise-Keeping God. So what I want us to see this morning is, is how God is faithful to his promises, just as we sang a few moments ago. How God is faithful to his promises and he's faithful to his people. We see this 
in the first sentence, which is really in, in the way the, um, the, the gospel would read in, in the original languages, this is, for lack of a better term, the title of, of Mark's gospel. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So the first thing that we see is that God sent the Messiah, just as he had promised. Told us the beginning of, of the gospel. Now, when, when we see that word beginning, I think that's meant to take us back to Genesis. And what Mark is doing is, is directing our attention to the, the fact that God is continuing his story of redemption that was begun in the beginning in Genesis. And he's carrying that on through, this, through the person of Jesus Christ. We see that again, of course, in John 1, where John simply declares, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. See, the New Testament writers will often refer us back to the beginning as a reminder that God keeps His promises. We're told it's the beginning of the gospel. Gospel is a word that simply means good news. And what's interesting is that in the first century, the word gospel um, was not used to, to exclusively describe the gospel of Jesus. So it wasn't exclusively a Christian term. In fact, it was often used when a new emperor rose to power. People would go throughout the land declaring the gospel of Caesar. There's good news. We have a new emperor. Believers then co-opted the term to describe the best news the world has ever heard, that God became man to save us from our sins. We're told this is not just any gospel, it's the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's important for us to, to realize this, most of you probably know this, but, but it's important to realize that Jesus Christ, like, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Okay? He, wasn't, he wasn't the son of, of Joseph and Mary Christ. Okay, that's, that's important for us. It's a title. The, the name Jesus is the, the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word Joshua, which simply means Jehovah saves. So Jesus would have been far from the only person in uh, the first century and around Galilee that had that name. He was not the only, the only Jesus. But his name means Je Jehovah saves, and then Christ is a title. It's a, it's a Greek word which means the appointed one. It's, it's the equivalent to the Hebrew word Messiah that, that the, the Old Testament believers would have heard so much about the coming of Messiah. So in Jesus' name, we see that God saves and that he is the promised one who would come. Jehovah saves and he's the promised one. And he finally closes out this first sentence with, the Son of God, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And this is really, as, as I said earlier, this is the, the theme of Mark's gospel. Jesus, the Son of God. So Jesus' divinity will be emphasized throughout the gospel. Now, if you care about semantics and original copies and all that, this, th th there's some discussion about whether or not this phrase, the Son of God, was actually included in the original. It shows up in some early manuscripts. It doesn't in some other early manuscripts. Um, I, I think after my study this week, there, there's good reason to believe this is authentic. Uh, but at any rate, we, we certainly see Jesus presented as the Son of God throughout this gospel. 
And here's why that's important. In the first century, the emperor, Caesar, and, and in, in the case of the time when Jesus came on the scene, Caesar Augustus was regarded as a god. Now, I would emphasize the little g on that, but he was regarded as a god in the Roman Empire. And both he and his descendants were often given the title Son of God. And so documents declaring the good news or the gospel of Caesar Augustus, the Son of God, would have been present all throughout the Roman Empire. So what Mark's doing here is taking a phrase that that would have been understood in, in the culture And he appropriates that language for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the true Son of God. So even here in, in the first sentence, we, we see a little bit of treason happening, all right, which is always exciting, right? Especially, especially here in the United States, we don't really like, you know, rulers and, and government authorities and especially kings and those types, right? You have some treason and some rebellion happening right here in the first, um, in, in the first line. No, no, we're not declaring a gospel of Caesar. We're declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ, the, the real and the only Son of God. So here, in, in, as we begin this, in the beginning of this gospel, in the first sentence, we're presented with the fact that God has kept his promise to send a Messiah, the one who would be the Savior of the world. And Mark introduces us to the good news of that Messiah, Jesus Christ, Son of God. God keeps his promises and he shows that to us by sending the Messiah. But also, God sent a messenger. He sent a messenger to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. He immediately goes to to a couple of Old Testament passages in verse 2. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make his paths straight. Uh, Mark wants us to to see that that God is fulfilling something he had promised long ago. And and he he takes, he says here, uh, as, as is written in Isaiah the prophet, and he actually takes quotes from both Malachi and Isaiah. The first one is, is Malachi 3.1, which, uh, understand, this was written about, three, about, about, excuse me, about 400 years before Christ was born. This is what Malachi says. See, I'm, sending, I'm going to send my messenger. He will clear the way before me. Then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant you delight in. See, he is coming. 400 years before Christ was born, Malachi declared these words, declared this promise. And Mark's showing us how this is being fulfilled in the life of John the Baptist to prepare the way for the Messiah. And then in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, this was written about 700 years before Christ was born. And here Isaiah says, A voice of one crying out, Prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness. Make a straight highway for our God, in the desert. So this is important for us to realize that, that sending Jesus was God's plan to save the world before he created the world. 
The, the Bible declares that, that God knew. He knew mankind would turn away from him. So he wasn't shocked when sin entered the world. When, when Adam and Eve chose their own way, when they chose to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that had been forbidden, God, God was not like sitting on his throne going, what just happened? Now I've got to figure out how to fix all this. Jesus, it's a bad day for you, man, but you're going, no, that's not what, that's not how that happened. God knew exactly what would happen. He already had a plan to redeem us. And he made his plan known to the saints in the Old Testament that one day there would be one who would set things right. And in John the Baptist, we see this. We see that God did not just send Jesus into the world, but he sent a messenger to prepare the way for him. I'm amazed every time I think about that. Usually we'll, 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 we'll consider this at Christmas time when, when we see the promise made to Zechariah and Elizabeth that they would have a child in, in their old age. And that he'd be the one who would prepare the way. But... Uh, I think we, we always kind of tend to skip over the, the message of John the Baptist. For one thing, it's, it's kind of uncomfortable maybe for us to think about this guy who walked around in uh, clothes made out of camel's hair and eating locusts and honey and just kind of walking around almost like, like, like he's deranged yelling, Repent! Repent! But, but God sent a messenger to prepare people's hearts and that was his message. Repent. In fact, we'll look at this next week in, in verse 15. This is John's message. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So what we see that John came, John came doing primarily two things that we'll see here in in his ministry. First of all, he came baptizing. And specifically, we're told that he came baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, now there's a lot happening there. We're told that he came baptizing in the wilderness. This is really the, the first time we're int introduced to the um, idea of, of baptism. This is a unique thing where, he, where people would get dunked underwater as a sign that they were following a teacher. But he, and and by, by the way, the fact that he was baptizing is where he gets his name, John the Baptist. Okay? Um, that's, it was just a description. He was known as, oh, oh John, yeah, that's, that's the guy who will baptize you, right? You go out to, you go out to hear him and you're going to get baptized. But don't miss the phrase, in the wilderness. That's intentional. Keep in mind that, that in the wilderness would have been very familiar language for Jews. The, the Jews wandered in the wilderness for 40 years because of their unbelief and their disobedience toward God. So here, Mark's drawing a line from the Old Testament, from the Jews wandering in the wilderness now, now to John. And, and honestly, the, the way John appears, and uh, he's, as I said, he, he's dressed weird, 
He eats, eats locusts and wild honey, and he kind of wanders around. He, eats, he looks like an Old Testament prophet that's stuck right here at the beginning of the New Testament. And he's baptizing in the wilderness, in the same region where the Israelites would have wandered, proclaiming that this Messiah whom they've been waiting on for so long is finally coming. We're not just told that he was baptizing, we're told that specifically that he came proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, repentance simply means to change your mind, to change one's mind. It's the idea that you deliberately turn away from sin, okay? In other words, it's not, it means to, to deliberately change one's mind, but, but it goes far beyond just simply thinking differently. It, it means I'm going this way, and now I'm going to turn around and go this way. I'm, going to, I'm not going the same way I was before. From a biblical standpoint, it's to turn away from sin and to turn to Christ. So John was calling people to repent and believe the good news that the Savior was coming. And for us, it's to repent and believe that the Savior has come. And look at the response in verse 5. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were, coming, were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now, Mark's employing a little bit of exaggeration here. Because I think you would understand that, that when it says the whole Judean countryside and all the people in Jerusalem, it doesn't literally mean every single person that lived there. But the, the, the point is there was a massive response to John's ministry. As he was calling out, repent. There were many people, scores of people who were going out to see him, to hear him to be baptized by him. His message made an impact. And again, isn't it interesting, when we look at his message, simply repent, believe the, the gospel, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The gospel is good news. It doesn't need to be dressed up. The, the gospel doesn't need smoke and lights. I read about a church th- this week, and, and I won't say where and I won't say who. I'm just not, I'll say this, not in our area, okay? Let me, let me, so I'm not like throwing shade at anybody in our area. Um, but I read about a church that um, is, is part of our Southern Baptist family. And... Uh, Big, big church. They'll, part of their Sunday morning service is they'll have their worship team, and I use that word lightly um, because it's, it's a rock band. It, it's, they're not playing worship music. The, the way they, they bring people in is they'll, they'll perform like uh, top 40 hits on, uh, off of iTunes. If you're familiar at all with the top 40 hits on iTunes, Bringing those into a church context can be um, interesting. And, and I heard the pastor say this. He said, oh man, we, we believe the same gospel. We're not preaching another gospel. We just package it differently. 
We just, we're not your normal church, so you know, you're going to come in here and you're, you're going to hear songs that, that you might hear on iTunes, and, and uh, you know, we're going to have smoke and lights, and, and occasionally we'll have like, you know, people doing backflips on stage, literally like doing backflips on stage. And, um, and, and, and all I could think as I watched this was, okay, I get what you're saying, right? That we, we believe the same gospel, we just don't believe that's enough. So we believe that in order for the gospel to make an impact, we, we've got we've to put on a cool show. We've got to dress it up. And listen, when I read the New Testament, do you know what I don't see? I don't see anybody dressing it up. I mean, like I said, you've got John, who's this quirky guy who really didn't care, like, what people thought of him. He dressed in camel hair. He ate locusts and wild honey. And he's screaming at everybody to repent, and, and people come to him. I'm, I, I, I stand here firmly b- believing that what we win people with is what we win people to. So if you put on a big show and you expect that that's going to win people, the, the problem with that is you have to put on more show. Go bigger and better. And, and, and I stand here saying, listen, I, I, I want to win people with the gospel. I, I, don't, I don't want people to, to, to come to church because because we put on a great show. I want people to come to church because we believe that the God we serve is great. And and because the gospel is good news. So I don't I don't think anyone has ever been won to Christ by smoke and lights. By fancy shows, by Britney Spears songs sung from the stage. They're one to Christ by hearing the good news proclaimed faithfully and consistently. And they're one to Christ by people declaring, listen, my life has been changed. Because I once was lost and now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. That was, that was the message of the people that encountered Jesus and were changed by him. Let that be our message as well. I don't have a cool show to, to, to put on for you, but let me tell you about this God that changed my life. And people came to hear this message. Not only that, we're told that they came confessing their sins at the end of verse 5. To confess simply means to agree with. So, so to confess sin means to agree with God that you are a sinner. But it's also to agree with God about the consequences of those sins. Namely, that that the wages of sin is death, as we see in in Romans 6.23. So anytime we see that that word in the Bible, to confess, it just simply means I want to agree, we're going to agree with God about my sin. Confess my sin. Yep, that's me. I'm a sinner. My sin has separated me from God. Yes, I want to be reconciled to him. And then in verses 7 and 8, we see that John came preaching. So he came baptizing, and he came preaching. But he had one job, he had one message, as we've looked at. He was declaring that the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. 
And ultimately, in verses 7 and 8, this is what we're told his message was. He proclaimed, one who is more powerful than I am is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John had a powerful ministry, but he realized that his ministry was not about him. He wasn't interested in procuring his own kingdom. He was interested in proclaiming the kingdom of God. And and in fact, later on in in John 3, we're told that um, some of John's disciples come to him and say, John, Jesus is still in your thunder, man. Like all these people that were coming and listening to you and and being baptized by you, they're they're, they're leaving you and now they're going to Jesus. What are you going to do about that? And I love John's response, John 3.30. This simple sentence. He must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. Man, listen, you want to live a world, you want to live a life that will change the world around you? Make, Make this your life's goal. Jesus must increase, but I must decrease. I've known a lot of, I've seen a lot of pastors who have ruined their ministry because they got this backwards. Now listen, you, you, you take this to heart, you know what that might mean for your life? It, it might mean that you live in obscurity. It, it might mean that, that, that people outside of your, your friends and family and in that area never, never know your name. But it also might mean that you, you will have an eternal impact on the kingdom of God by allowing Christ to show in and through you and to impact those that you come in contact with for the sake of the kingdom of God. He must increase, but I must decrease. And you know what, what's interesting is what, what happens when Jesus comes on the scene, we don't really hear about John again until He's martyred by Herod. Jesus increases. John decreases. And yet, this is what Jesus had to say about John the Baptist. This this quirky guy who lived out in the wilderness and ate bugs and wild honey. And this is what Jesus said about him. As these men were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swaying in the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothes? See, those who wear soft clothes are in royal palaces. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way before you. So Jesus says here, first of all, listen, you, you went out to see something. I, I know that. It wasn't because he, he had a lot to offer. It wasn't because he was, he was dressed nice. and It wasn't because of the, the fancy words that he was using. You went out to see him because he was a prophet and, and even more than a prophet. But then look at this last phrase. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, no one greater than John the Baptist has appeared. But the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. 
See, John said, he must increase and I must decrease. And Jesus said, let me tell you this. There's never been a greater man to walk the earth than John the Baptist. Shouldn't this remind us of that truth that the Bible declares that man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart? God's not really concerned with, with what kind of stuff you have or what you drive or what your house looks like or what kind of clothes you wear when you come into church. And God's concerned with our hearts and how we're surrendered to him and, and those things that would fight for our attention and affections. And listen, we want to we live a life that will make impact for Christ. Let him increase. Let us decrease. All right, so here's the question. What do we learn from this opening section in Mark's gospel? Well, we, we learn that God keeps his promises. We saw that he kept his promise about sending the Messiah to save his people that he promised hundreds of years before. We, we, we see that he sent a messenger and, and he kept his promise about sending a messenger to prepare the way for Messiah. We also learn that this gospel's good news. It's good news for sinners. It's, it's good news for those who are far from God. It's, it's good news for those who have been reconciled to God because it should be a reminder of where we were and where we are now. It's the news that God sent Jesus to be your Savior, to pay the price for your sin and to remove your sin and shame. If you're here and you've never trusted in Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior, let me just tell you, today you can be reconciled to God by confessing, agreeing with God that you're a sinner, repenting, turning around, and trusting in Jesus as the Lord and Savior of your life. Maybe you're here and you'd say, Kyle, I know for sure that I've been saved. So my, my simple follow-up question then is, who do you need to tell? Who, who in your life, who in your circle of influence needs to hear the good news? I'm not suggesting that you go outside their house and dress weird and eat weird food and yell at them, right? What, what I am saying is that we've been given this mandate, and that's what we're going to focus on on Wednesday nights beginning in March, is, is how we can be effective witnesses, how we can be consistent witnesses, declaring the truth of the gospel. So here's what I want us to do this morning. I don't have, a, say, I don't have a, an invitation hymn planned, but I'm just going to ask Fiona to come and just play on the organ. Let's, let's spend some focused time in prayer this morning here. First of all, reflecting on the good news of the gospel. If you're a believer, reflecting on what God has saved you from. Then secondly, asking him, who in my life needs to hear this good news? Let's spend just a few minutes focusing on that as she plays, and then I'll close this in prayer and we'll transition into our office.
Father, I thank you for the good news of the gospel. I thank you for the, the fact that at the right time, you sent Jesus to earth to be the Savior of the world. I pray we would never get over that. We would never take that for granted. But that we would come to understand the great sacrifice that it was on your behalf to, to send your only son and for Jesus to leave his throne in heaven to come and live among us. To model for us what, what a life sold out for the kingdom of God looks like and to die on the cross for our sins. I pray we would learn from John's example that we don't have to, we don't have to do fancy things. We don't have to dress up the gospel. We're called simply to call, to proclaim the good news, to call people to repent. So give us the courage of John to do that and help us follow his example that we might be decreasing. Our wants, our desires, our fears, our cares would decrease. Our reliance on you would increase. And your shining through us as followers of Christ would increase. Thanks so much for your word and the way that it convicts us and calls us to repentance, even as believers, and, and shows us those areas that we need to turn from sin still and to trust in Christ. Shape us and mold us into the people you want us to be. We ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Alamogordo. We are located at 1100 Michigan Avenue in Alamogordo, New Mexico. We meet on Sundays for small groups at 9 a.m. and worship at 1030. If you have more questions, please email office at fbcalamo.com or call 575-437-5510. Thank you for listening and may God bless you this week.